All right, so I adapted this outline from John Grassmick's uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary, and I just want to go through and look at where we've been at so far up to this point in Mark. We've gone over quite a bit, even though we're only in chapter six, there's been a, a lot of stuff that's happening. That's how Mark works, that's his MO. He goes immediately, 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 right? Just moving along. So it's good to step back once in a while and recapture where we're at in the, the broader picture. So back, all the way back at the very beginning in Mark 1.1, we have the, the introduction of the gospel, just the title, that it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's going to be Mark's emphasis, his uh, mission throughout this whole book is to focus on the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And you'll notice all throughout here, the way that Mark kind of outlines his gospel is um, somewhat geographically, that he's going to take us on a journey from Galilee into Jerusalem. And the cross is going to be the, the pinnacle, the, the highlight. That's what we're working towards. We're working towards the cross. It's all about how Jesus is the Son of God up until this point where the centurion realizes this man was, in fact, the Son of God. So that's how he starts off the story, and that's where we're going throughout the whole of the gospel. And then in the first 13 verses or so, we see the preparation of the, the public ministry of Christ. And then a couple of subheadings under that, we remember that John the Baptist is where John Mark started off his gospel with John and the ministry of John. And because we're going to be looking a little bit closer at John later on today, um, what do you guys remember about John the Baptist from this first uh, introduction that we have to him back in Mark chapter 1? What are some things we remember about John the Baptist? There's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Yeah, I'm going back to Malachi, right? Malachi chapter 4 is kind of pointing forward to that. And um, there are other Old Testament references saying that there's going to be a, a forerunner. And John says, that's who I am. I'm the forerunner, right? I'm not the Christ. I just point people to the Christ. What else do we remember about God? He's normal dude, right? Didn't he? What's that? Didn't he live in the wilderness? Yeah, he lived in the wilderness. So, he's not quite a normal dude. A wild buck, is that what he says? Wild man. A wild man. Unusual. Totally unusual. Yes. Quite conspicuous. In his clothing, in his diet, uh, in his affect, the way he carried himself, he was very unusual, right? Would you classify John as a timid type or a bold type? He was bold. He was quite bold, right? And we'll get another glimpse of that this morning. All right, so that was John the Baptist, all the way back at the beginning of John or Mark chapter 1. And then we saw the, the baptism of Jesus. Another pop quiz. What is it that we should think of when we hear the word baptism? What word should pop in our mind? Or, no, that's not a bad one. Not not water, right? And I think that's typically what we think of when we hear the word baptism. Our, our minds automatically go to water. And we don't want to do that. Bert, that's that's a good one. Sanctified. That's also a good one. That's not the one we talk about in this class. I think I'm, I'm failing you as a teacher. <laughs> no. Identification or association, right? 
because there are different types of baptism in the Bible, and each of them are identifying with something else. So when Jesus was baptized, what is it that Jesus was identifying himself with? The kingdom of God. Uh, he was preaching the kingdom of God, right? Yeah. And he was identifying himself with, with us, with humanity, who are in need of the kingdom of God, because he's without sin, right? He has no need to repent. That's what John's baptism was all about. It was a baptism of repentance. Uh, acknowledgement, saying, yes, I need Jesus, or I, I need God, I need help, because in and of myself, I am unworthy. I'm unrighteous. I need to repent. And so Jesus was identifying himself with that, with those who are in need of repentance, with us who are sinful, even though he has no sin within himself. And when we are baptized in water, we are identifying ourselves with Jesus, saying that we uh, we need him, just as he is identifying himself with us in his baptism. All right, moving on. We keep doing this. We're not going to get through this review, so I need to pick it up a little bit. We see the temptation of Jesus in verses 12 and 13 of Mark 1. Grandma's playing music back there. <laughs> Jamming out in Sunday school. <laughs> All right, then the next big section that we see is the, the early Galilean ministry of Jesus. We see this for the first few chapters. Again, we're starting to see the, the geographical outline that Mark has for us here in this outline as it's laid out for us. We see a summary of his purpose statement in 1, 14 and 15. We talked about this a little while while we were there. This really kind of summarizes all of what Jesus came for. Um, how would you summarize what Jesus came to do and what his ministry is here uh, during his earthly ministry? To serve and to die as a ransom for many. Amen. Good job. To serve and to die as a ransom for many. And that's our, our other uh, verse that we're looking at that we've identified as our, our main verse in Mark, Mark 10, 45, right? Um, good job. In... 1415, it says that now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time of fulfillment and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we'll have to, we'll come back and we'll realize later that this message is really identical to what we just looked at in as John's message, right? John was preaching a baptism of repentance and Jesus came to uh, preach the kingdom of God. Uh, so kingdom preaching really is his purpose. He is there to preach and to teach. We've seen that several times throughout the gospel. And it is a, a kingdom preaching that says repent and believe. That you need to uh, acknowledge your sin. You need to come to God in belief of who he is. We see after this, in verses 16 through 20, that Jesus calls the first four fishermen, or the four, first four disciples who happen to be fishermen, uh, Simon and Andrew and James and John. And then we see his authority demonstrated over disease and demons. And this is the, the start of his miraculous ministry. And, uh, we're going to see a lot more of Jesus exercising his authority. And that's another theme that we see all throughout this book, the authority of Christ. Uh, bigger section here, controversies with religious leaders, chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, 5. And within that, we see the, the man lowered down through the roof. 
And how did Jesus exercise his authority or demonstrate his authority in that situation with that man? Forgave his sins. Amen. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, right? And they said, this is, this is blasphemous. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, yeah, that's right. And let me show you that I have the authority not only to forgive sins, but to tell him, get up and walk. And that's exactly what he did. And he went off from there and he demonstrated his authority over the Sabbath. He says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That man's not, not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for man. And Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He performed these miracles on the Sabbath, showing that he had the power and the authority as God to do just that. And then at the end of 3.6, we see that this section is concluded with Jesus being rejected by the Pharisees. That's when the Pharisees, um, they, they get together with the Herodians and they say, you know what, we need to get rid of this guy. We need to, we need to honor him. And they started to uh, conspire amongst themselves how they would destroy him. And that's kind of the, uh, the theme that we see from men and the response of men that um, they begin to reject Jesus and continue to reject Jesus as Jesus is being demonstrated to be even more and more uh, God. We, we see and understand the fact that he is God more and more. Uh, going on even further, uh, 3, 7 to 6, 6, where we were last week, um, we see his later Galilean ministry. The first section we looked at there was the, the followers versus disciples in chapter 3. We saw the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And again, within that section, we saw uh, the rejection of that the men had towards Jesus, right? They said, no, it's the, he's doing these things by the power of Satan. And then we saw kingdom parables throughout chapter 4. The, the bulk of chapter 4 is Jesus telling these parables about the kingdom. And then in recent weeks, we've been looking at this amazing section at the end of 4 and 5 that really demonstrates Jesus' authority in, in four different areas. His authority over nature, that he can tell the, the wind and the waves to cease, and even the wind and the waves obey him. He has authority over nature. He has authority over demons and casting out the legion of demons. Uh, it's not just the, the physical realm that Jesus has authority over, but the spiritual as well. He is king and lord of, of everything, right? He is the, the creator of all things, seen and unseen. And then we saw in the last few weeks his power over disease in healing this woman who was suffering with this 12-year bloody hemorrhage where she's in pain and suffering for 12 years. And Jesus comes along and shows her care and compassion and this authority over the disease that she is afflicted with, and then the authority over death in raising this little girl back to life. And so that, that section right there, that's a good place to take somebody to when uh, you want to demonstrate the, the deity of Jesus. Oftentimes people will say that, well, yeah, John, John likes to raise Jesus up as God. But the other Gospels, they really kind of ignore that. They don't focus on that. That was a later development that John came up with in his own mind. That's garbage, right? We can see that so clearly in this section. Later on, when uh, Jesus is walking on the water, we'll see that he says, uh, fear not, I am. The same kind of statement that we see often over and over again in the Gospel of John. 
But this section right here, uh, especially paired with chapter 2, that Jesus has authority over sins because he's God. Jesus has authority over nature because he's God. Jesus has authority over the demons as God, over disease, over death. And nobody can do these things other than the one true God in the universe, Yahweh himself. So this is a, a great place to go to for those things. And then last week we looked at the conclusion of this section and we saw here again that Jesus is rejected by those in Nazareth. That a prophet is not accepted. He's not embraced in his own hometown. They said, who is this guy? He's just a, just a carpenter. We know his mom. We know his siblings. He's nothing special. And they rejected him. And then um, if you look at Mark 6, verse 6, you'll see in the next section that he kind of moves off from there. It says at the, at the end, rather, that he was going around the villages teaching. So they didn't want him there. And he, he dusted off his feet, right? He said, all right, I'm, I'm out then. And he went to other villages. And so uh, these next sections, we'll just go through real quick. These are sections we haven't really dipped into yet that are going to outline the rest of Mark just to uh, show us where we're going. So from 6.6b to 8.30, we see Jesus' ministry in and beyond Galilee. He starts to move out a little bit. And then he journeys to Jerusalem up through chapter 10. Again, we're working our way to the cross, remember. And we see Jesus' ministry in and around Jerusalem, starting in chapter 11 and into chapter 13. And then the, the pinnacle of why Mark is writing this gospel, we see the, the suffering and the death of Christ in Jerusalem. That's what he's getting to. That's what he's driving to. And we're going to get there. But he's taking us on a journey along the way. That's in chapters 14 and 15. And then at the end, chapter 16, the, the first eight verses, what I would say would really encompass the whole uh, inspired section of chapter 16, is the resurrection of Jesus near Jerusalem. And then we may spend a lesson or so talking about the disputed epilogue at the, the end of the gospel. But with that background, working our way up and that little bit of an outline, let's go ahead and jump into where we're at today and look at this weird uh, dispute, dichotomy, uh, this whole weird interaction we have between John and Herod. Uh, we're going to be at John 6. Will somebody read this passage for us? It's a little bit longer. This is a good passage. John 6, or Mark, rather. John Mark. We'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> Mark 6, 14 through 29. Who's got that for us? I'll get it. 14 through 29? Yeah, unless you don't want to do all that, you can do half and somebody else can pick up. Right. Okay. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he is Elijah. And others were saying he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had, <clears throat> had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. But John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he had heard of him, and we heard of him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. 
A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod for, and his dinner guests. And the king said to her, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and he had him beheaded in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took him away his body and laid it in a tomb. All right. Thank you. It really was a long section. I should have broke that up. Appreciate it. All right. So we see that this section starting off in verse 14 uh, with King Herod hearing about everything that Jesus had been doing. Now, whenever I come to a, a section like this and, and introduce to King Herod, uh, I always have to go back and remind myself who King Herod is because it's so easy to forget because there are numerous Herods throughout the Bible. So before we jump in, we've already taken a little bit of a look at John. Let's take a look at who this Herod is. So um, first off, we need to remember that John is not writing chronologically, right? He's not starting at the beginning and, and writing for the end. You've probably already noticed that in this section. There's some, some weird stuff going on. So we have to remember he's not writing chronologically. If you remember back, the last time we had heard about John in chapter 1, um, it, John Mark just kind of told us that he's in prison. It says in John 1.14 that John had been taken into custody and Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel. And that's it. We're not told why he was taken into custody, how that worked out. Uh, Mark just says, yeah, he, he was locked up. Now let's focus on Jesus. And now here we get to verse 14 of Mark 6, and all of a sudden he's dead. Uh, without initial explanation, it just says that when King Herod heard of it, his name had become well known. People were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. So he just kind of drops the bomb on us. Uh, these two spoilers, so to speak. First off, John's in prison, now he's dead. We have no idea up until this point what happened. And so, uh, we're going to get some, some explanation. Mark is finally going to give us details on these two events uh, as we carry on. But again, as I said, let's first look at Herod, who this Herod was. So there are three main Herods that we see in Scripture. Starting with the first, we see uh, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was known as King of the Jews. That was his title. Is that a familiar title to you guys? Have you heard that before? Right. Yeah, that's what Jesus was identified as. That's what he was called, right? That's what he is. He is King of the Jews. And so Herod was given this title, King of the Jews. Um, going back even before Herod, his father, Antipas, he was appointed by Julius Caesar uh, seven years before Herod took the throne in 47 BC. He was really buddy-buddy with the, the Romans. And after he was appointed, Herod's daddy said, well, Herod, you can go, you can uh, be a, a military commander. You can have this position in the military. And he rose up pretty quickly. And he too, uh, like daddy, uh, made friends with the Romans pretty quickly. 
we see that um, he is known as a friend and an ally of Rome. That's what he's quoted as. Remember, he is um, the, the king of the Jews, and yet he is doing all this other stuff on the side with Rome. He was really close with Mark Antony and Octavian. You guys might recognize them from Roman history. And eventually, they made him governor over Judea. So he had this region that he was able to command, and then he was given the title of the King of the Jews. And Herod the Great, he liked to build all kinds of stuff. He erected full cities, uh, Caesarea, and devoted it to Caesar. Um, he built all kinds of statues and, and monuments and memorials. Uh, what is he most famous for, do you remember? What is his greatest architectural achievement? King Herod. So the, it's not the temple, is it? Yeah. It is a temple. Out of boy, Joseph. He built the Jewish temple. Not only did he build that temple, he built other pagan ones as well. Oh. But that was like his his number one achievement. He built a Jewish temple to try to gain some influence with the Jews. However, that didn't really work because he was an Edomite, so he was never really embraced by the Jews. Uh, remember that Jacob and Esau, they, they didn't really get along. Esau was the father of the Edomites. These two nations that were warring within the womb of their mother uh, are now warring even centuries later. They have this bad blood between them. Uh, there's a, a whole book in the Old Testament devoted to how Edom needs to be rebuked. Um, and so the Jews didn't really embrace Herod as their king because he was an Edomite. And we see that he is the one who, in fact, ordered the death of the infants back in Matthew chapter 2. Remember that? When he heard about this other king of the Jews who wanted to come and take this title away from him, and Jesus had to go on the run, this was Herod the Great who set all those things in motion. Obviously, God before that, but Herod was the the human instrument that God used to do those things. All right, the second Herod, that was Herod the Great, or the King of the Jews. The second Herod that we see in Scripture is Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas. And he is the one that we're going to be looking at here. He's the one who uh, is responsible for killing John the Baptist, this Herod the Tetrarch. And we see him called that in Luke 3.19. Luke 3.19 says, But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done. So this is Herod the Tetrarch who is uh, going to take the head of John the Baptist. We also see that he is the one who was... Uh, Responsible for the mishandling of Jesus' kangaroo court trials, right? These procedures that take place at the end of Jesus' life. This is the same Herod who's responsible for that. Uh, Jesus calls him a fox, and he really is a, just a scheming man. Um, Josephus, a Jewish historian, he says that Herod Antipas, he divorced his first wife, and then he um, his first wife was the daughter of Aratus IV, and he did this in order to marry Herodias. Well, uh, Aratus, he didn't really like the fact that his daughter was kind of just left behind, that Herod had, in fact, divor divorced her to be with Herodias. And so in 36 uh, AD, he went after and he attacked uh, 
Herod Antipas and defeated him and uh, just really put him to shame. It was only a few years after that that Agrippa came and told the emperor that he's some kind of plotter and he's looking to uh, overtake Rome. And then Antipas was deposed and exiled and historians tell us that he and Herodias went off and they killed themselves together out in the wilderness with no power, no authority. Uh, so this whole situation, him chasing after Herodias and leaving the daughter of Herodias really came, to, came back to bite him later on and really ultimately be his demise. Um, so that is King Herod, Herod the Tetrarch. That's one we're going to be dealing with today. Just one more Herod to look at briefly, and that is King Agrippa, who I just mentioned, this one who had him deposed. Uh, he is Herod the King, or King Agrippa. And we see him mostly in Acts. We see him in Acts chapter 12. He's the one who's responsible for killing James, the apostle. The apostle who, by the way, isn't replaced, right? So we shouldn't be looking for a, a living apostle or a living prophet because that wasn't continued on. Um, he's also the one who is responsible for, in part, he, I guess he wasn't responsible, but he overheard part of Paul's testimony in Acts 25 and 26. So, three different Herods that we have in Scripture. We're going to be dealing with the second one, Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas. And I have a, a quote here to share with you before we get back into our text. This is from Josephus, and he says of Herod uh, and this whole situation, he said, Herod who feared lest the great influence that John, talking about John the Baptist, had over the people might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief that he might cause and not being and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repeat repent of it when it should be too late. Accordingly, he sent a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper and was put to death. Now the Jews had an opinion that the destruction of this army was sent as a punishment upon Herod and a mark of God's displeasure against him. Now, it's, uh, that's not divine inspiration, right? We're not told that God actually sent this destruction upon Herod as some kind of retribution, or that uh, Herod was worried about John having some kind of uprising and, and rising up against the Jews. But it is interesting to see that even in secular history, they took some interest in this whole situation, this interaction that Herod had with John the Baptist. Uh, this is something that Josephus found noteworthy and included in his antiquities. All right, well now, that's a lot of background, and I'm thankful that you're still here and with me. But let's get into the text and um, look at these crazy dynamics between these two very uh, outgoing and, and loud men, Herod Antipas and John the Baptist. Um, I'm going to read through, once again, just verses 17 through 20, but as I do, I want you to consider the, the crazy dynamics that are at play here, that are going on between these two men. So starting in verse 17, it says, For when Herod himself sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, 
and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. So again, there are a lot of things going on here, a lot of complexities at play. What are some of the dynamics that we see here between these two men? And I, there are more than just a few men there, I guess, but what are some of the, some of the dynamics we see here? He enjoyed listening to John. Yeah. That's crazy, right? Yeah, he... It says here that one of the reasons he put him in prison was to keep him safe from his wife. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's messed up, right? His wife wants to kill him. And here is, I, I need to protect you from my wife, right? Absolutely crazy. What else? What are some other weird things that we see in this passage? Well, they recognize John is a holy and righteous man. Yeah. Yeah. Weird stuff. All from their mixed feelings. <laughs> yeah, he, he's holy and he's righteous, and yet he's in prison, right? At the hands of this man because of his wife. Messed up story, right? You think you have a dysfunctional family. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe I still do, but. <laughs> All right, uh, so just to summarize a couple of things that we do see here, we see that Herodias hates John for calling her out on her adultery, right? She's the one who has this initial beef with John. She doesn't like him because he's straightforward and confrontational with her, sharing the truth with her. This hatred is elevated to the level of murder. Um, I don't know if we see that necessarily in those verses. Maybe we do. Uh, but eventually, she has this murderous desire within her heart. And she wants, yeah, we do see that in 19. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not do so. She didn't have that authority. She didn't have that ability. And as Jerry pointed out, it's her husband, Harry, who actually comes in and protects John. Uh, and yet, he still has this fear and respect for John, even though um, John is the one who's calling him out. Not only does he have this fear and respect, but he actually enjoys hearing from him and, and listening to John, while all the while John is continuing to, to call him out and, and point out their sin and say, hey, that's not right. She shouldn't be your wife, right? Just this, this constant chirping from the prophet of God in his ear, letting him know this isn't okay. Well, let's go back um, in Leviticus 18. We talked about the fact that John is calling out their, their adultery, calling this out as sin. We see this rooted back for us in Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18, verse 16 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is not your, or it is your brother's nakedness. It doesn't belong to you. You need to stay away from your brother's wife, right? Very cut and dry, very clear. We uh, see a, a similar thing jumping over to, um, actually, let's keep going. So that's just your brother's nakedness. And 17, keep continuing down, says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter and to uncover her nakedness. They are blood relatives. It is lewdness. 
18, you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. And over in chapter 20 of Leviticus, verse 10 says, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It's not a good thing to sleep with another man's wife, right? And in 21, if there is a man who takes his brother's wife, it is abhorrent. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They will be childless. Those are very clear verses, right? Very clear passages that God has spoken. You shall not sleep with another man's wife. You shall not take your brother's wife. Uh, doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter if you're a king. Doesn't matter if you're a priest. Doesn't matter if you're a prophet. Nobody has the authority to take another man's wife. And here, that's precisely what Herod has done, right? Herod has um, divorced this other woman, which again, will later come back to, to haunt him a little bit, will ultimately be his and his demise, and taken Herodias, his brother's wife, as his own. And it's John calling out for her and saying that's not okay, that is ultimately his demise, that upsets her and uh, she is unrelenting. She doesn't really get off his back and, and leave him alone. Well, um, any thoughts on that? That's kind of a lot. Thoughts or questions? Yeah. Just, just as a woman to think of, do you bless your husband? How, how hard for her, an unsaved man, a man who doesn't know God, but enjoys listening to the wisdom of God. Yeah. And his wife totally destroys him, you know? Yeah. Yep. There's, yeah. I just, it, it makes me cringe to think he has to save from his own wife. Yep. Yeah, we have a lot of influence over our, our spouses. Huh? The, the ability to really enrich their, their lives or really to, to bring them to, to this kind of point. Yeah, Joseph. So like this Herod guy, you're saying that he's not actually of Israel, right? Um, I don't know. I don't know his heritage to you. Well, didn't you I say he said that he's the Edomite? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so Herod, Tetrarch. Yeah. So, yeah, do you think that John ever tried to like appeal to Herod like, with the law? Um, so I'm sure he did. Yeah, that's, that's well, what that's he did, right? right? He was like, preaching. Right. Yeah. I mean, even if, even however, Herod regarded like the law. I mean, obviously, it's I think it's common sense that it's just not right to do that, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so God is, but I'm just gonna keep a law in our heart, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Herod absolutely. Let's look at Romans two fourteen. So yeah, he had John preaching to him, preaching this to him, the law to him. But Romans two fourteen and fifteen says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the word of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So Herod had this internal law that was within him that was accusing him. It certainly wasn't defending him because he wasn't doing anything worthy of being defended in that situation. And then externally, he had John the Baptist sent from God telling him, that's not right, don't do that. So he had these two uh, different uh, 
uh, I don't know the word witness. What's that? Witnesses. Yeah, yeah, witnesses. He had an internal and external witness against his sin, what he was doing, and he still chose to ignore them. And so, yeah, with that being said, why is it that you think that Herod enjoyed listening to John? Even though all John was doing was adding to this internal guilt, this internal witness, uh, he still liked to hear from him. What do you think he liked about that? Well, as you said, it's related, closely related to Rome. Caesar was the most convoluted, messed up system of unlawed receive. And so it's refreshing to not to be able to know that somebody's saying the truth and not be listening to somebody who you can never be sure is telling you the truth. Which is what most of the people that surrounded him were. Yeah. Yeah, the truth has an appeal to it, right? Especially in the midst of a a whole society that doesn't even value truth, that doesn't know what truth is. And the truth has a, a special ring to it that just is, really captures the air, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so there are really a lot of people who enjoy the, the things of God and, and hearing even about the things of God, about truth, without actually embracing the truth, without actually embracing God who just, they, they never really get there. They enjoy flirting with the truth, and maybe they'll, they'll show up to church and uh, they'll participate in, in Bible studies and these things, but they never actually submit to God. They never um, realize that, they, they never come to this repentance that John was preaching, right? Where they have this, this change of mind that results in a change of action, where they actually surrender themselves to the truth of God's word, to God himself. And it seems like perhaps that's where, where Herod is at. Are you looking up something, Jerry? Well, it's not something to the people. <laughs> I can't remember the chapter in Hebrews talking about the people who got really close and enjoyed the benefits, but never yeah, they, they never tasted it. Tasted. Yeah, that's a warning passage in John chapter 6, right? They've, they've tasted of this, and they'll never be renewed again to repentance. Well, that's just a, a taste. They haven't really indulged in it. They haven't uh, consumed it. And that's yeah, a good passage for, for Herod. He, he just got there and he thought, yeah, maybe. And later on, King Agrippa too, right? Um, Paul said, well, maybe. Well, he told him the, the gospel. He told him the story. And I guess it's kind of disputed the, the tone in which King Agrippa said, but he said, um, perhaps you will have... Uh, persuaded me to become a Christian. Or could have said, you think you're going to persuade me to become a Christian just with that? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's hard to read the tone, but uh, there, there is such a thing as getting right up to the edge and, and rejecting Christ, and never really embracing Christ, and it seems like that's what Herod eventually did. Uh, another weird dynamic that we have at play here is just the the natural power dynamics that we have here, that uh, this tyrant king, uh, not really king, a, a tetrarch rather, Herod, uh, he was elevated to power and he proved himself 
ultimately to be weak and scared, even though he was in this this power or this position of power. And yet John was just a, a lowly prisoner, and yet he didn't refrain from his duty to preach the truth of God uh, or uh, let these strange power dynamics somehow hinder his boldness and what it is that, that God's calling him to do. It's really interesting that from a, a worldly perspective, Herod is up here, and John should be shaking and trembling. And yet it's just the, the opposite, that John had within him this mentality of, uh, if God is with me, who can be against me, right? That uh, he had set his mind on, on things above. He realized that he was a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of earth. And even though this man had the power of his life within his hands, John didn't uh, shrink back from calling us in. And I think we need to take that lesson and run with it to realize that we shouldn't shrink back from calling us in. Um, even if the person that we're addressing is uh, quote-unquote superior, right? We still have a responsibility to speak the truth, but to do so in gentleness and respect. Um, if we look at verse 18, when John's calling out Herod, it says that John had been saying to Herod, the, the way that that is structured, the, the verb tense there indicates that he kept doing this over and over again, that it was repeated, it was unrelenting, that John continued to call him out over and over and over again. Um, it's pretty convicting that <laughs> this, this bold, lowly man can stand up to this tetrarch and repeatedly call him out, and yet I have a hard time opening my mouth when uh, talking to kids or, you know, person that I run into at the store or my neighbor, stranger at the mall. But John just puts me to shame. Any other thoughts on those verses, 17 through 20 or any of those? Well, it's interesting somebody commented that uh, really didn't have a kingdom to give him. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he, he wasn't officially a king, right? The, the Herod before him and the Herod after him, they were uh, kind of kings, more kings than he was. He was just a tetrarch, but yes, he didn't have a, a kingdom to divide and to this girl. All right, let's look at 21 through 29. 21 through 29. And 21 starts off by saying that a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. So, first off, starting off, it says that this was a, a strategic day or an opportune day. What do you suppose made this day strategic or opportunistic. He was, he was throwing a party, trying to impress people and getting drunk. Is that, I mean, right? He was just getting, his wife knew the road he was going to be drunk and this is like, yeah, I can get him to do something stupid. <laughs> yeah, he, he had all these people there, so there was peer pressure, there was influence by these other people that he wanted to impress and, and she knew his, his heart that he wanted to look good in front of his buddies. And yeah, as you said, there's likely wine and alcohol there. And, uh, when you get the booze flowing, then your inhibitions are lowered, right? All 
right? Um, we see that this really just leads to Herodias manipulating this whole situation. This strategic day gives her this opportunity uh, to get what she wants. She's, she's really scheming and conniving. Uh, she's calculating and getting what she wants and uses this as an opportunity. And we see in 22 that this is when the daughter of Herodias comes in and is paraded before all the dinner guests. You see in all the, the sin here, the manipulation and conniving spirit of Herodias and then their daughter being paraded and uh, brought in to, to dance for Herod and all of these other men. Um, she's not she's not doing the hope pokey, right? She's uh, not that kind of dancing. She doesn't please these men because um, she's leading them in the Macarena. It's just so much fun, right? <laughs> this is a different kind of dancing. This is a seductive, um, sexualized dancing that she's doing before these men. And her sick daddy is pleased by it, right? It says that uh, Herod was pleased along with his dinner guests. Uh, this is just sin after sin after sin, just so wicked that um, it's just adding sin upon sin. And then on top of that, Herod goes and makes this foolish, open-ended, unspecified public oath and says, you know what, you did such a good job with the hokey pokey that um, I'm going to give you whatever you want. You go ahead and ask for it and without even thinking or again, kind of being, having his inhibitions lower, he says, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll give it to you. He makes this oath. Well, he, he could have stopped there, even after she responds with, I want the head of John the Baptist, right? After mom steps in and uh, she mixes things up and adds more sin on top of the whole thing. Eric said, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, it would have hurt his pride, right? Especially in front of his friends. But he could have stopped. You guys remember back in uh, 1 Samuel 25 when David is dealing with Nabal and Abigail. And um, Abigail tells, well, actually David is upset with Nabal because he wouldn't feed his men. And he's going to kill him. He says, you know what? I'm, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to do away with you. And Abigail, sweet little Abigail, comes up and says, please don't do that. And after one request, David says, okay, I, I won't. That's fine. He relinquishes his oath. He lets go of his pride. He's a humble man. He's a man after God's own heart. And he doesn't hold on to that. Uh, but Herod doesn't do that. He's more like Jephthah back in Judges 11. You guys remember Jephthah? He made an incredibly foolish vow. He made a vow to God. He said, you know what, if God, if you give me this scene, when I get home, whatever comes out of my house to greet me, I'll, I'll sacrifice that to you. Supposing he's going to have like a, a chicken or a cow come out of his house to greet him. Like, how stupid is that? <laughs> and his daughter comes out of his house. And he's like, oh no, my daughter. Now I have to kill you. What an idiot. And he actually goes through with it. But um, rather than being humble like David, uh, Herod is just proud and stupid like Jephthah. And he says, okay, well, you, you made me make this oath. I'm going to, I guess I have to go through with it. And he sends off to have John's head collected. Um, just sick, right? Uh, 23 says that he swore to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you. 24, she went out and talked to her mom. What shall I ask for? And 
he, she said, ahead of John the Baptist, and immediately she came in and hurried to the king and asked and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Uh, whenever I read that, I think of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and that girl who says, Daddy, I want it, and I want it now. Right? <laughs> I want it. Um, give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Um, and remember, all this is at the request of Mop Herodias. Uh, how do you think Herodias, this manipulating, adulterous, um, child-exploiting, murderous woman, had impacted her daughter? What kind of influence do you think she had on her daughter? Probably not a good one, right? Just apple don't fall far from the tree. But we have to realize that really this is all happening in, in Herod's house. How do you think Herod was managing his own house? Not too well, right? In fact, I think Herod was managed by his household. And I think we see that in the text, that his household was running the show, was Herodias. Even if it a uh, manipulative, calculated way, she's the one who's calling the shots and running the show here. He didn't have his household under control at all. And then in addition to this, we're trying to look at, okay, well, Herodias is kind of calling the shots and moving the hand of, of Herod, even though he's the one who has the power and the authority. But if we take even a farther step back, we can see that Satan is also at work, that he's doing his own manipulation of all of this. He has a scheme. He has a plan. He's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking who he can devour. And we'll take a, a look at that later on in the sermon in 2 Corinthians 4. And the, the manipulative work of Satan, the, how the, the spiritual realm plays in all this as well. And in verse 26, it says that although the king was very sorry, he was so sad, guys, yet because of his oaths that he had made, because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. So Herod's pride really overrides his quote-unquote sorrow. If he was really sorry, he wouldn't have done this, right? But he was so proud that his dinner guests were there, and he couldn't have himself shamed in front of his dinner guests. So he went ahead and uh, went through with this execution. And hopefully by this point, you're seeing how many people are caught up in this scheming divisive plan of Herodias. She's broke her doctrine. She's manipulating her husband, got him involved. Um, all the, the people who are sitting there just ogling after her daughter, they're all caught up in this. Um, we have now the the executioner also, who goes out and is collecting the, the head of John the Baptist. Uh, all these people that are really caught up in this sin um, is really kind of sickening. And um, this experience we'll see really sticks with Herod, it seems, that he doesn't forget about it. And that's why it's brought up at the beginning of this passage that Herod can't get this whole situation out of his mind. I got this quote here from, from Augustine, um, talking about this whole situation, how wicked it is. He says, a girl dances, a mother rages, there's a rash swearing in the midst of a luxurious feast and an impi impious fulfillment of what was for. Again, just sin added upon sin added upon sin. This is a, a wicked situation. Um, again, Herod definitely didn't have his house in order, didn't have his house in control. And it showed in the outflow of events. 
All right, so let's go back now and look at the first few verses that we skipped over to see how this event really did stick with, with Herod in his mind. Uh, I'll just read those real quick, 14 through 16. It says, And King Herod heard of it, again, all the ministry of Jesus that he had been doing, casting out demons, healing people. Uh, it got around, Herod heard about it. For his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, no, he's Elijah. And others were saying, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, same word we looked at before, over and over again, he kept saying, John, whom I have beheaded, has risen. So we've already mentioned up until this point, Jesus' relative fame and, and popularity. But Mark points it out explicitly here that people continue to talk about Jesus. He is famous in the region. Everybody knows who this Jesus is. And earlier, back in John chapter 3, whenever Jesus was doing something, or not whenever, but uh, Jesus did some miraculous things, and people had attributed his power to Satan, right? To Beel Beelzebul. But now we're told that there are some who are assuming that uh, Jesus can do these things because he is John the Baptist. Um, what does this assumption tell us? What can we infer from this assumption that people are thinking Jesus must be John the Baptist? There's a high regard for John the Baptist. <laughs> yeah. It's certainly a, a more favorable position than saying that he is doing these things by the power of Beelzebul, right? By the, the power of the, the dumb God, God of poop. Hmm. He has teaching the same. Yeah, good. Yeah, same teaching, right? He, he hears John preaching a baptism of repentance, and now Jesus comes along, and he's preaching a baptism of repentance, saying, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, dude, that's got to be John. That's, that's what John always used to say. He used to bring him in. I like hearing John. This sounds an awful lot like John. This must be John. That guy that I killed, he's, he's back. He's here for me, right? Good. That's an acknowledgement that everyone knew that John's death was unjust. Yeah. That's what Herod thought anyway. Yeah. In in their minds we think, okay, well they they're thinking more more highly of Jesus, right? They they recognize his unique power, even though they were mistaken about where it came from. Um, they think pretty highly about Jesus. However, we have to also realize that this speaks very highly of John, too, right? John is being compared with Jesus. That's that's a pretty good thing, all right? Um, no better person to be compared to. So it speaks of their high regards for Jesus, but also of uh, John's high regard. And uh, Herod's repeated assumptions really indicate, at least to me, that there's a sense of guilt, that he's got a, a guilty conscience, and he knows that what he did is wrong. As we mentioned, he's got this, this internal witness. He has John and, and all those words that he spoke to him ringing in his ear. And it seems like he's he's guilty. And, and he knows that what he did was wrong. And Logan, as you mentioned, he likely also recognizes the consistency in their message. That they're both preaching a, a baptism of repentance. And while this story seemingly ends on a, a negative note in verse 29... It says that when his disciples heard about this, they came and they took his body away and they laid it in a tomb. It kind of ends kind of ominously, right? Negatively, and 
well, he buried him, and it might seem like, okay, well, well I guess Herod won. Herod had the, the upper hand, and John's dead. Again, Herod ends up being deposed not long after this, and goes off, and uh, history says he, he killed himself along with Herodias, and things went kind of south for him. And ultimately, if unless he turned and repented, he's, he's burning, right? He's not in uh, a good place. He's in a place where there are tears and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, I really like how uh, Christostom has his take on this whole thing. I want to share with you this Christostom quote as we end. He says, the request was abominable, but she persuaded him, and he gave the order to bridle John's holy tongue. But even now it continues to speak. For even today, in every church, you can hear John still crying aloud through the Gospels and saying, It is not lawful for you to have the wife of your brother Philip. He cut off the head, but he did not cut off the voice. He curved the tongue, but he did not curve the accusation. He will never be silenced, nor the reproof at all weakened by the passing of time. I thought that was a, a pretty good day that John wins, right? Not here. We need to remember that. And I think we need to uh, ask ourselves how seriously we are taking Jesus and how seriously we are taking the truth. Are we willing to be changed by the truth? Are we willing to submit to the truth? Or are we just willing to, to flirt with the truth, to kind of get close to the truth and to, to hear it? Like Eric, he, he didn't mind hearing the truth, but he wasn't changed by the truth. He wasn't affected and transformed by the truth. And certainly, we don't want to be like Herod, right? We want to be like John, who was bold and willing to speak up and to proclaim the truth, uh, no matter what it was going to cost him. We want to be like John, not like Herod, right? Be bold and actually embrace the truth rather than just getting up to the edge and, and tasting it without actually consuming it. Other thoughts or questions? We have a minute or two before we have to wrap up. So, the, I guess Herodias' daughter would have been Herod's niece. Yep. Right. Yeah, sick, right? But it's still, yeah, it's still like, whoa, what the heck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very, very wicked man, right? So, is there any on how Philip and Herod got along? Philip was a co-regent of that area. Yeah. But I guess that's all just common ordinary stuff, much like today, where people sort of want to change remarry, and it doesn't matter who. It's a very common thing, certainly in, in, in those days. That was yeah. not on, out of the ordinary whatsoever. That was interesting. I thought my hair got deposed. What happened to Philip? Uh, Philip didn't last too much longer. Agrippa came in. Agrippa was King Agrippa, whereas Philip and Herod, uh, they were tetrarchs. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they had a split brain, split rule. Herod wasn't the son of Herod then. They all have the same name, but there's no genetic. First Herod, second Herod are not related. Yeah, they are. Yeah, so it's like his father? Yeah, yeah, so Herod the Great is the father of Herod and, and Philip. And of Philip. Okay. 
concepts, and he split the, the reign and power between them. But Agrippa was his nephew. So it, it all stayed in family. Yeah. Joseph. What? I thought you were Oh, no, I was saying hide away. Oh, <laughs> I guess. All right, let's pray and we'll wrap it up. God, thank you again for the story. Thank you for your people, for your spirit. We pray that you would be pleased with our worship today and that uh, we would decrease and you would increase. God, help us to be like John, to be bold, to be courageous, to go out and speak and proclaim your truth with gentleness and respect, um, setting you apart as, as Lord and our heart. God, we love you and pray. Amen. Yes. 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 Yes.